Hi, it's Marianne. This podcast is a replay of our recent All Authors Live virtual Q&A, Dementia with Difficult People. For more details, please see the show notes. Let's get started. Welcome to the All's Authors Podcast. We're so glad you found us. I'm Marianne Shuko, a registered nurse, author, and dementia daughter. Join me each week to listen to one of our authors talk about their dementia journey, sharing intimate details and painfully obtained knowledge to help others currently on that path. We hope these stories offer you comfort and support as we strive to break the silence and stigma surrounding a dementia diagnosis. May one of our authors speak to your experience. This is the Whole Care Network. Helping you tell your story one podcast at a time. Content presented in the following podcast is for information purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the host and guest and may not represent the views and opinions of the Whole Care Network. Always consult with your physician for any medical advice and always consult with your attorney for any legal advice. And thank you for listening to the Whole Care Network. Hi, I'm Vicki of All's Authors. If you're a caregiver looking for support on your dementia journey, please visit our website at allsauthors.com. You'll find hundreds of resources written by caregivers and professionals in Alzheimer's and dementia care to offer you knowledge, comfort, and guidance in an easily accessible format. That's allsauthors.com. Remember, you are not alone. All right, let's get started. Hi, I'm Marianne Shuko. I am a co-founder of All's Authors and a manager. Welcome to this presentation of All's Authors Live, Dementia with Difficult People. This is something I've been planning for like all year long. I just thought it would be (laughs) such a great topic. And uh, here we are finally in November. So um, we are the global community of authors who write about Alzheimer's and dementia from personal experience to light the way for others. If you're not familiar with us, we have over 300 authors in our organization and more than 300 books, as well as blogs, podcasts, film, and other resources. You can find us all over social media, and we're here to help guide people on their dementia journey. Okay, I want to introduce our panelists. First is Vicki. Tapia. She is a co-founder and manager of All's Authors and a member of the board of directors. She is the author of Somebody Stole My Iron, a family memoir of dementia, which chronicles her story of caring for both parents with dementia at the same time uh, without the support of her brother. She, uh, for most of her life, spent her time working with um, lactating mothers and babies and turned 
to the opposite end of life when her parents became ill. She also serves as treasurer of our organization. She's an acquisitions editor and all-around asset at all's authors. So Vicki does it all. Susan Landes is also a member of our board of directors and the management team. She's the author of two books, In Search of Rainbows, A Daughter's Story of Loss, Hope, and Redemption, where she writes about the gifts she found while caring for her mother with whom she had a tumultuous relationship. She later penned Optimal Caregiving, a guide for managing senior health and well-being. She took up, she is a certified nutritionist and a certified senior advocate, studies that she took up when she became her father's caregiver, which she is currently doing now. She is the artist on our team and responsible for creating all of the beautiful images that you see on our social media. And she manages the distribution of our custom caregiver collections. Barbara Ella Milton Jr. is the author of Heeding the Caregiver Call, the story of Barbara Ella Milton Sr. and Alzheimer's disease, which tells her story of caring for her estranged mother when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's while she herself endured treatment for bladder cancer. She is a clinical social worker, clinical supervisor, social work educator, child welfare advocate, activist, social media producer, and resilience expert, and has been an impactful social change agent for the wellness of at-risk youth and families for decades. She's also written several other books along those lines. Malia Klein is the author of Sisterly Shove, a memoir that tells the story of when she and her sister took on their parents' care despite their personal differences. She is the younger sister in the book. A copywriter who studied journalism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, she was formerly a writer-producer at a CBS affiliate TV station. She owns her own copywriting business and shares her word-obsessed perspectives in Malia Mania, a comedic grammar blog. Kim Best is the author of How to Live Forever, a guide to writing the final chapter of your life story. She's a speaker and trainer on conflict management, transitions, and difficult decisions, including end-of-life issues. She spent most of her career as a registered nurse in intensive care, trauma, and emergency medicine, where she cared for people in extreme need and gained valuable experience in the medical system. She's passionate about helping others resolve conflicts in a productive, non-litigious way and in finding the optimal solution to problems for all parties involved. So before we get to what this program is about, let me tell you what it's not about. We in no way mean to imply that people with dementia are difficult. We know dementia can strike anyone regardless of their personal situation and that if there are difficulties, they are often due to the disease and not to the nature of the person living with the disease. But sometimes families who have had years, decades, or lifelong struggles, differences, and even estrangements receive a dementia diagnosis, and the caring is made even more difficult due to these challenging relationships. That's what we're talking about today, the relationships and how they were, they were repaired so that caregiving could take place. Okay, so let's get started. I first wanted to talk a little bit about heeding the call to care, what it was like when you learned that your parent uh, had a dementia diagnosis, and you had had a history of troubled relationship with them, 
how did you come to, to heed that call? How did you come to make the decision that you were going to become the caregiver for that person? I'd like to start with you, Barbara, because that is the title of your book, Heeding the Caregiver Call. Yeah, thank you, Marianne. Thank you so much for everyone being here today. Uh, I know you have a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we're so grateful that you chose to spend it with us today uh, for this next hour. Um, Yeah, I wrote an entire book about the process of heeding the call for my mother's care. Um, My background with my mother was fraught with uh, abuse and neglect, uh, abandonment, Uh, I didn't live with her for the first nine years of my life. And she was a teenage parent. She had me at the age of 14. And I suspect that the circumstances around my conception uh, were not um, loving kindness and consensual. Um, So so the very very notion of my existence was traumatic to my mother. And of course, I understood this as I went on to study trauma and social work and clinical social work and psychology. I didn't know that as a child and I certainly didn't know it uh, uh, through my adolescent years, which were the uh, place we got stuck at, my mother and I, we were stuck at power struggles. It was a very contentious relationship and it was a relationship characterized by me sort of um, relating to her at holidays and funerals and weddings and things like that. But the times in between were fraught with lots of uh, anger and uh, an ongoing abuse, uh, verbal abuse primarily and neglect. Uh, so that's that's the backdrop of my relationship with my mom. And so when I got this phone call in, and she's a fiercely independent person, she's a fiercely um, uh, uh, resilient person as well, uh, having survived her own upbringing of, of abject poverty. Uh, racism. Uh, she's a lesbian woman, so she had a lot of persecution both in the church and in her family and in the community, uh, including police brutality as a lesbian woman. Uh, so she's got her own trauma background uh, uh, that made sense for her behavior, actually. Um, but what happened was, is uh, in the fall of 2015, I received a call from my mom and she said, Uh, you got to come down here. Something's not right. Something's wrong with me. You got to come down here. And that was very uncharacteristic for my mother to call on anyone for any kind of help and let alone her daughter and, you know, to save her face and her pride. And, um, but she made that call and I live 90 minutes away in Northern New Jersey and she lives in South Jersey in Camden County. And uh, I made the ride down with lots of trepidation. I'm like, I never heard her sound that way before. And when I walked into her home, it was in total disarray. Uh, and she's walking me from room to room saying, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't understand why this, uh, uh, you know, what is this thing here? And it was a telephone and she didn't know what it was anymore. And she opened up her refrigerator door and there was like garbage in the refrigerator. And she says, I don't know how that got there. Somebody comes here and puts garbage in my refrigerator. I mean, she was just a wreck and piles of paper everywhere and mail all over the place, mail in the bread box, mail everywhere, you know, and it was total disarray and it was quite shocking and jarring to me. And in that moment, I faced an existential crisis. I'm an only child. I'm her only child. Um, I asked myself three things. Could I, would I, or should I take on this obvious uh, um, 
this obvious problem where she needed care. She could no longer potentially live on her own. And she was obviously not well. And so I said, could I do this? I was in the middle of bladder cancer treatment, chemo, uh, procedures every 90 days to fight my bladder cancer. I'm still undergoing bladder cancer treatment um, today. And I asked myself, did I have the physical strength to even take this on? And I concluded I must. And then I asked myself, would I do it? Because she wasn't easy to deal with. She was very, very verbally abusive. And she was very, very stubborn. And she was very, uh, I was afraid of her, to be honest with you, um, as I was as a child. Um, and, but I had to answer that question, would I do it? Who else could do it? No one else could do it. I had to be the one that did it. Mm -hmm. And should I do it? Like, that's my Christian faith. My faith said, I had to do it. I mean, I had to try to figure out a way to provide care to her, where I you know, uh, I I had very little contact with her for years. Like we just, like I said, on holidays, birthdays, things like that. And they were very measured experiences. And I stayed until uh, I was hurt because I was inevitably hurt. And then I would leave. That's the value of being an adult with my own life in Northern New Jersey. I would go, uh, withstand some of the barbs, withstand some of the blows, and then I would leave to the safety and sanctity of my own home with my loving wife. So um, I, I, you know, I had to barrel down on the should I question and I said, yes. And then the book I wrote talks about how I provided that care over the course of the five years that she lived. Alzheimer's took her quickly out of my life. And I'll share more on that at another time. Okay. Thank you. That's a really powerful story. Susan, can you share what you went through when you um, learned about your mom's dementia and you were kind of um had kind of a similar relationship with her absolutely um <clears throat> my mother and i had as far back as i can remember have always had a very strained difficult relationship um she had suffered from dementia or i'm sorry from depression and mental health issues uh she was very um cruel to me she abandoned me, rejected me many, many times throughout my life. Um, the funny thing about that was I, I had a younger brother and he was almost six years younger than myself. And she treated him very well. She was very affectionate to him, um, which made it even harder when my mother, uh, years down the road, developed Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's disease. And he refused to be a part of the caregiving process and left everything to me. Um, when I was 16, I left home. I moved across the country and I was uh, all but estranged from my parents. Um, we rarely saw each other and we kept in touch mostly by phone calls, um, especially because of my dad. My dad and I shared a close relationship and we still do. Um, so when my brother, completely, I thought he would be the one to go to their rescue because he had always seemed to have a very stable relationship with my parents. Um, I did not. So when he refused, it fell to me. I had to quit my job. I had to completely rearrange my life to take care of them. Um, I, I felt that I, they were so vulnerable. How could I say no? 
Um, I had every reason to justify walking away based on my past, but I couldn't do it. But it ended up being a blessing in my life and one that I will never regret. Um, the dementia changed my mother so much. She became softer, kinder. The walls came down for both of us. And we built a new relationship. And it was such a blessing at the end of her life because we were able to have a peaceful relationship. We, we found forgiveness and healing and we ended up coming full circle. And that's something that was so inspirational to me. Um, however, when she, when she passed away, it was the abandonment issues came up and the rejection. I felt that she had, how could we have this beautiful relationship? And then she dies. So anyway, that's, that's why I wrote my book. It was part of my healing process. And I wanted to share that with everybody. Okay. Thank you so much, Susan. Vicki, can you share with us your relationship with your mom? I think after listening to Susan and Barbara that my relationship was a piece of cake, <laughs> although it didn't seem that way at the time. It just, my mom has suffered from depression. I never knew which mom I was going to get. The one that would slap me at a moment's notice or expect a perfection from me or a loving mom. And I, and I it went back and forth. Um, she started having, doing, having odd behavior. And my dad was already ill with Parkinson's disease and the associated dementia. But I think that caring for him made her more anxious and more angry and she did strange things, which I did not at the time have any clue what was going on. I just, it went right over my head. She didn't recognize her granddaughter. She asked me what an egg beater was used for. She could not figure out her computer, although she'd been able to do it to a point before that. And I was like, what is going wrong here? But to, I was very kind of slow. <laughs> But I finally, um, they lived about two hours away from me and I encouraged them to move closer. Um, eventually they acquiesced and, and moved here. And it was only after they moved here and my dad went into memory care and my mom assisted living in the same building that she was finally diagnosed. By, by that point, I had wised up and I was not surprised that she was diagnosed with moderate dementia. Um, she, her personality, like Susan's mom's personality changed and became sweeter. My mom, no, she continued to be suspicious of everything. She accused me of many different things, stealing her money. Um, she continued having depression and sleep disturbances. She would show up in the common area of their, the second place they lived with no clothes on swearing. I mean, that wasn't my mom, but the disease had kind of taken over her life. I think um, in the end, the last four months of her life, she, I don't know if this was conscious or unconscious. She just pretty much quit eating and she became softer then. It, although sometimes she didn't know who I was. She was very much easier to be around for me. Um, my dad, through the whole the whole time period, 
was always very sweet. Um, the dementia didn't change his personality either. So they both kept their personalities. I wish my mom's had changed, but oh, well. Um, I never thought about heeding the call. I just did what I needed to do. Uh, tried to draw my brother into it. He was not cooperative. He said he preferred to remember them the way they were and that I could handle it. Um, he's 15 years older than I am. So the little sister, I, I just knew it was what I needed to do. Mm. It was just the way it was. I didn't even think about it. I just did it. So. Thank you, Vicki. Malia, can you share with us your story? It's a little different because um, you, you did it with your sister. That's right. Um, we, we wrote the book Sisterly Shove. Um, we alternated chapters because we had such a different, totally different perspective on caregiving, on the way things were, the realities of it. Um, so I, honestly, um, I wanted her to write off different chapters because she was more in the throes of the day-to-day -day caregiving. She um, took care of my father who had uh, dementia single-handedly with no help for seven and a half years. And um, she, uh, I, I thought she needed something. She needed some outlet. Um, but the basic idea was, and to me, you know, she was the difficult person in our relationship. My father was fairly lovely. My mother, uh, lovely. Um, but um, my sister would say exactly the same thing about me, that I was the difficult person in the relationship. So, um, but basically the, uh, the growing up, you know, we never, we didn't look like each other. We didn't think like each other, but until our parents got old and sick, those differences, we could sweep them under the rug. So um, the basic story is after Duke med school and residencies, she settled in a California beach town and I stayed in our North Carolina hometown near our parents. Um, it was easy to ignore, ignore this oil and water relationship we had for each other because we were on opposite sides of the country. And, um, you know, mainly it was handled on the phone. But she, um, the once our parents were not the parents and we became the parents, uh, it fueled this bi-coastal battle uh, in which sisterly love that we had always had became what I called sisterly shove. So um, I think um, that the difficulties I saw in her being a doctor, she could do everything better. You know, I had stayed in our hometown and I'd been with our parents for two decades and done what they needed to be done, did, uh, to have done. And um, my brothers lived elsewhere and were largely uninvolved. Um, so I, I sort of, in terms of heeding the call, I definitely heeded it when it was easy for 20 years. And I was right there. I was the one who stayed. Um, but then when the, you know, the problem became, my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, given three to six months to live. She was the caregiver for our father who had dementia. So um, my sister just took over. You know, I became ineffective, you know, uncaring. <laughs> I just, I could never do anything as good as her. You know, she was the protester. I was the private person. She was the, the virtuoso violinist and I was, could barely play the piano. <laughs> so, you know, our, uh, our, 
the fact that she really, really thought she was better at everything. Um, she ended up taking my mom to California and doctoring her, doctoring her by herself. She made it about five months. Then um, I had my father with dementia and elder care, a uh, memory care unit in North Carolina. She kidnapped him, or I called it elder napped him in the night and took him to California and uh, proceeded to, um, you know, create this clash that went on for 13 years. And um, anyway, um, I could I could enumerate the ways in which she uh, she was difficult and she was definitely um, knew more about medicine, knew more about everything. Um, the one thing that made her the most difficult, and this is the book, the book has funny moments. It's, um, you know, um, just, it was insane, but uh, she did not believe in, in adult incontinence products of any type. So as you can imagine, you know, an elderly man who can't control his uh, functions, you take him to a restaurant, you can imagine, what kind of nuttiness ensues. So there are moments like that. But anyway, I would say on a day-to-day -day basis, <laughs> that was the most difficult thing about her. If she had just, you know, <laughs> used uh, adult diapers, things would have been so much better. But anyway, in a nutshell, that's the difficulty. And, and when I hear Barbara talk about her difficulty and Susan and Vicki, again, it sounds ridiculous. And, and my book is, uh, it, it sees the comedic, um, you know, things that happened when when you have somebody who's got dementia. So that's it. There's a lot more, but I'll, I'll stop now. <laughs> that is an incredible story. Thank, thanks for Thanks for bringing up the trauma of my diaper stories with my mother. <laughs> Sorry, that was probably a bad thing to remind you of. <laughs> I think we all have them. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So, I'm not alone. No, you're, you're not, not alone. alone. <laughs> That's the whole purpose of this, to know that you are not alone. We, we, we have um, these four authors here today with us, but um, there are several others who have been in similar situations um, who were, did not join us today. But it is very common for people to have to come to terms with uh, a lifetime of um, turbulence and struggle to become a caregiver and uh, manage to overcome it and try to find, you know, sometimes rainbows like Susan, or they find peace and uh, live up to their own expectations of themselves. So I, I guess that's what it comes down to. Um, everybody here has had to make a reckoning with the past. Does anybody want to share mm -hmm. any thoughts on that? Like at a, maybe there was a moment when you just realized that you had put the differences aside for now or maybe forever? I think what what was um, really um, like an aha moment for me was when I realized what I really wanted was my mother's forgiveness as well as mm -hmm. my own. Um, it was strange because everything that I did was based on my past and I had to put that aside and every decision I made had to be, it had to come from a different place. It couldn't be from the way that she treated me, the way that I wanted to be loved by her and accepted by her. Um, it was it was strange because I had to forgive her when she couldn't remember why I was even forgiving her. 
she had no idea what the past even was anymore. When it was constantly on my mind, everything I did was very measured and I had to push through it every single time I made a decision, every time I came near her. It was always, I always had to be on, on my guard because I never knew what to expect. Yeah, I, it was hard seeing my mom sick. Um, I was always just to seeing her self-reliant and strong and persevering uh like she you know she worked three jobs if she wanted something she didn't want to rely on welfare like she just was had a tenacious personality around survival and knowing how hard it was for her to make that call to me to say I need help I mean that was jarring to me it, it was quite jarring um and seeing her sick and reliant on me and other people was very hard for me to watch. Uh, she, you know, she was as independent as she was stubborn, you know. And um, so I, I, you know, I kind of knew from the get-go that I was in a spiritual process. I had to employ spiritual solutions to this physical, like, malady. Like, this is a, the heaviest lift I've ever had to do in my life to inherit her life in its totality, every aspect of her life I had to take on. And I was not well, and I had to take it on. And um, I, I kind of understood the importance of empathy and compassion. That's what sort of kicked in for me, that I had, it, I had to put myself in her shoes. And what would it feel like to be like spiraling out of control, like to lose yourself, to lose your memories, to to go through the angst of sundowning, to, to, to wake up in a place that's no longer familiar to you, that you lived in since 1982, you know, and it was, it was 2019, 2015, 2016. So um, that empathy was the pathway for me to let go of the past and to present, present sort of a leaning face of compassion, like the beginning, like practicing compassion and loving kindness with her, as, as as Tara Brock would say, you know, like to to practice loving kindness to her, um, because it didn't matter if I was right or wrong or fighting over the little things she would say, and I'd try to correct her, like I had to abandon all that, you know, because uh, she was sick, and she wasn't going to get well, she was just going to get sicker. And, and that was the pathway for me for empathy and compassion. Thank you so much, Barbara. That was wonderful. Kim, you're sitting here taking this all in. Do you have any comments? I do. I have plenty of them. First of all, um, I do want to thank Marianne and her team for what they do, the, for the work they do and the heart that they have for this work. Um, it's, it's just powerful. Um, I want to thank you all for being here. And the speakers, oh my goodness. Um, it's interesting. I think probably everyone here can find a piece of their story somewhere in your story. Um, I know for some of you, I relate so very much to parts of the story that, that you've said. And then I was a caretaker for my dad for 10 years. Ultimately, of course, at the end of life, he got dementia. That wasn't his primary problem. Um, and, uh, and my brother and I walked my mom through, through her ending. Um, and I know that caregiving uh, is it's it's an act of love. 
um, or it's an active duty or whatever motivates that it's not easy. And the thing I hear all of you share is um, the insight, the empathy, the compassion, and maybe perhaps ultimately the forgiveness that helped you navigate through this. And all of you have kind of said directly or indirectly that though the process was hard, you got something out of it. Like you grew in some way or you were gifted in some way um, because of things you got back that you weren't expecting to get back sometimes, or maybe even just lessons learned, maybe just that you did more than you ever thought you could do. Um, and I think that's just beautiful. I mean, it's just beautiful. Um, my favorite definition of forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past could be different. And mm -hmm. I think uh, that can be the hardest part uh, when you're at the end of a journey and you have this history, whether it's good or um, challenging or turbulent, um, that in that moment there that you know that the past will never be what you wanted it to be um, and that this is the best that people could do. And, and not only for the person who died and not only for yourself, but maybe also for the people who didn't show up to help you. Mm -hmm. So Marianne, those are the thoughts that I had while listening to these beautiful stories. And I guess the last thing again would be the power of story. I and mean, my book is called Writing This Final Chapter of Your Life Story because I really believe that um, we're writing a story we don't maybe realize. Uh, for me, I choose to mitigate for regret. Like I know I don't wanna lay on my deathbed and wish I would have done something differently. So sometimes that means that's my motivation for leaning into the hard. Um, but when you're a caregiver, you're also helping someone else write their story, you know? And we wanted to have the best ending for, for all of us, the family, the, the person dying, the caregivers as well. Um, so if there's a way to navigate for that, that that be the beacon of light that you see at the end of uh, the journey that can be what you're walking toward as you're walking through the hard stuff, um, maybe that's a little bit helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what you say, because it's the idea that things don't have to go on the way that they have or you know, not be the way that you want them to be if you're willing to take some actions, make the changes, you know, work it through because um, you know, in the end, we do write the story, you know, whether we realize it or not. Our life is the story that we set forth in most cases. So we can change things and, and try to make it better or more of what we want in the idea that. Forgiveness is giving up uh, the hope that you could, the past would be different. You know, it is a past and, and, and we can't change it. So we can change the future. Yeah. So um, most of every, everybody here um, went on their journey either um, alone or had uh, a sibling who was not really much of a partner, but the, the difficult person. How would you, what would you say um, to the uh, participants here about how to build a support network 
that isn't family. What did you do? Did you have other people in your life that were helpful to you relationship-wise, friends, other family members, not someone you would think would be the most natural person to be your right hand? How did you manage with uh, building your own support network? Vicki? Well, there, there's only so much you can burden your children children with. My children were part of my support network. They were all adults. And, um, I, but I knew I had to spread my, my angst around, right? My husband was marvelous. Um, it was a new marriage for me. We'd only been married a month when my mom was diagnosed um, officially. I mean, we probably knew but um, he, he was there for me. I, I wouldn't have made it through without him. I had a friend whose mother was also going through the different stages of dementia and she and I would talk with each other and she gave me the idea of journaling. Um, I think talking, talking to my journal was one of the best things I did. I could come home from visiting and I could lay it all out, write it down. Just, and as I, the words, came out of my fingers into the computer, I could let go and, and relax a little bit from my anxiety uh, over there, whatever had gone wrong <laughs> or right um, that day for my visit. Um, as I said, my mom was very unpredictable and I, I was never quite sure what to expect, but um, <laughs> I think finding a support group for some people is really helpful. And if you can't find one locally, finding one online, um, reaching out to other people that are in the same place, I think commiserating with, having someone to commiserate with um, is really, I think, absolutely necessary for us. You can, it's not a burden you want to carry on your own. And if you don't have that family member, I mean, I tried with my family member who at one point when I was moving my parents, not very far from where they were, but it became necessary to move them. And I called because my mom would call 10 times a day. And she said, if you make me move, it'll kill me. I'm going to go jump off a bridge. If you make me move, I'll die. She would call. I'm truly literally called 10 times a day. Um, I just quit answering the phone after a time. But um Knowing, I think I lost what I was going to say. <laughs> you said you reached out um, to your oh, brother I, for the move. Yes, I did. I said, I really need you to come help me with this move, the packing and the just everything associated with it. He said, do you need money? I'll send you money. I was like, no, I need you. I need emotional help. Hello, hello. I can't hear you. I think the phone has a bad connection. Mm. What he said to mm. me. So mm. I, I mean, I think it was at that point I realized there was no... There was no point in, it was at that point I realized he wasn't going to be there. So just to move on and, and find my solace in my wor written words and my husband, my friends. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard, it is, but it is. Yeah. And that's a hard decision to make because you think that you have somebody that's there for you and lifelong and, and, and uh, you know, a, a child as well you know, and, and has the same level of responsibility and then they don't, they don't uh, come Obviously through. he didn't feel that way. I no. mean, one of the crowning touches was he said, if there's any money left over, I want you to have that in a document that's been notarized that I will get half 
I think that was the part that pushed me over the edge. Mm. Um, yeah. Which I did. I mean, I, I had no reason not to, but it was really a little bit devastating to me that he did he couldn't trust that I would do the, the right thing. Mm. So thanks, Vicki. What about you, Malia? Um, I would say that um, in hindsight, um, I guess my support system was mainly my daughter was eight when this whole start whole thing started, and my husband my husband was a tremendous support as as uh, Vicky said, but um, my sister's um, daughter, it just now that I think back on it, the, she as a teenager really rose to the occasion. I mean, she was a tremendous support when my father was living in their house. And um, she was an art student. So she drew these phenomenal drawings and plastered his room with them. So when he woke up and opened his eyes, he saw all this, some of it disturbing, but interesting artwork, at least to stimulate him mentally, you know, and he would say, oh, is that a wolf? Is that a whatever? And um, when I think back, uh, she was a remarkable 16-year-old to have done that as a gift for her grandfather. So you never think about kids, especially teenagers, as being a huge support system, but she certainly was. And, you know, I, I admire her. She's mid-30s now, and I, I admire her to this day. She's truly a unique person, you know, mm -hmm. to see this grandfather as something to be nurtured, even though he seemed like a kind of a broken man in a bed. Yeah, so that was cool. Mm -hmm. Susan? Um, well, my brother, um, kind of the same as Vicki, um, was pretty much non-existent. Um, the thing that pushed me over the edge was when I confronted him and said, look, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. And he walked out the door and on his way out the door, he said, you signed up for this. I didn't. And that was mm -hmm. it. We're pretty much at odds. And I had always considered us having a, a pretty good, fairly close relationship and that we were completely estranged after that. So I was, I had my husband, um, both of my children were, were grown. They were no longer children. Um, and I relied on them a lot. Um, However, it's, you know, you can only tell them so much. They, they know what you're doing, but they don't really understand what you're doing. And sometimes they even questioned it. Well, your brother's not doing anything. Why are you doing it? You know, mm -hmm. why are you doing it all? And I said, because who else will? It has, somebody mm -hmm. has it. Uh, both my parents at that point needed help. And he was just not gonna be any part of it. So I relied heavily on both of my grown children and my husband, and I even found some online support groups that were very, very helpful. Um, I met some people that to this day are very near and dear to my heart. And um, it, it, it was just felt so good to talk to somebody, anybody, even somebody in a, in a waiting room at the doctor's <laughs> office or with their parents. And sometimes we would even just complete strangers, we would talk and it felt so good to talk to somebody who understood. Well, who's um, been, yeah. Yeah, it, it just, you know, uh, your friends, you try to explain to them and they really have no idea what you're going through. They'll sit there and they'll shake their head and go, wow, really? But they don't get it. They don't understand. And it, it was very frustrating. And, you know, eventually I lost touch with a lot of my friends because I just had, I didn't have any time for them anymore. 
our lives were so different. And it was really a painful transitional time mm-hmm. trying to be everything to everybody. Yeah. It really takes its toll. Are you, do you have your brother back now? I mean, are you guys? Um, you know, we, we still don't talk very much. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly it's not like it was cordial. before. Yeah. We're more cordial, but we, we really still are not there. I don't know that we ever will be. Um, I know that I can call him in an emergency situation, but he will not be there. Ugh. I mean, just will not. I begged him. Um, I know that part. I don't have time. I, I'm sorry. I'm busy. He yeah. always has an excuse. And it's, I just gave up. The only thing that got me through this is that I finally, instead of being angry at him, I just accepted it. And I said, you know, this is my journey. This is obviously not his journey. This is my journey. And I had to look at it that way. And once I accepted it, I I was at peace. Yeah. Did he come visit them, Susan? Pardon me? Did he come visit them during this whole time period? Did he come Um, and spend time with them? Since we've moved here to Oklahoma, um, we've been here now just over a year. Um, He has not come to visit and Mm -hmm. he made no mention of it. So I, I really don't expect it. I know that he well, keeps in touch with my dad by phone. Does he? While your mom was sick, did he come visit? He did occasionally when mm-hmm. he would have time. Yeah. But everything fell on me. Uh, my dad was having, a, he had a heart condition at that time, and we really had to watch his stress levels. So a lot of things I couldn't even tell my dad about. I just had to deal with them on my own just to protect him whenever mm-hmm. something my mom. So... But yeah, acceptance, gratitude, those two things are what really pulled me through. I just had to accept everything that was happening to me and feel gratitude for every little thing that went right yeah. <laughs> and got me through it. Did you have anything another, to add? One other. What was that? Go ahead. Uh, one other thing that I, I want to kind of give a nod to is when my father was in memory care, the people that worked there were fairly extraordinary in terms of their support. Um, and that's hard. My sister did not see that at all. She she saw them as incompetent. But um, um, I'll never forget when she took him away um, to California. He had lived there for five years and I was his main visitor and main support. Um, you know, I was, I was sitting in there waiting for them to bring me his stuff and his pills and whatever in this another woman who was, a you know, in the facility came up to me, saw me crying, put her arm around me and said, it's going to be all right, dear. It's going to be all right. And this woman, you know, didn't know who she was, where she was, why she was. And that human compassion that bubbled up from her just blew me away. So I've got to count the people there as support as well. Mm. Yeah, and um, I'd like to join the chorus in thanking and recognizing my 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 wife for being with me every step of the way. We were on the journey together, uh, and from the time the call happened until my mom passed away in January of 2019, um, and I don't know what I would have done without her ongoing support. The foot massages at night after I made the journey down to Camden and back to the four hour drive. 
um, all, you know, making and sharing all the decisions, the big decisions, so that I never felt alone. Um, I also want to put a plug in for technology because um, at the time my mom was diagnosed, this wonderful thing happened in the technological world, which are two-way audio video cameras <laughs> that you put an app on your phone and you can be, I can be in Hawaii, I could be in Puerto Rico, I could be in, in Northern New Jersey. And I had eyes on my mother 24 seven and, you know, and, and I chose to be the one during the surveillance and like sometimes I, you know, uh, go on camera and I'd see her like struggling to put a shirt in through the right hole, you know, the right sleeve arm, uh, you know, is at her head, you know. And then I would like uh, I would ring a bell and she would know it was me on the camera and I would start talking to her and I would say, Mommy, you got to take the take this shirt off altogether and let me show you how to put the shirt on right. Or I use it to prompt her to take her medications or I use it to walk her through making a bologna sandwich so she could eat. Um, or I would answer the door when someone is at the door. I could see cameras on the inside and outside, and I could see who was at the door. And I could see if we had a safety issue or not. Um, so, so technology saved the day for me because oftentimes I was incapacitated and I was literally laying on my back because I was receiving infusions or I had just had procedures or whatnot. So I want to put a plug in for that. And in terms of the, like my social work skills really came to bear uh, on how to do community organizing, how to find resources in the community. And I fancied myself being a conductor of an orchestra. That's sort of what it felt like to me of all the resources that I was able to call together from my mother, both inside the family and outside the family, uh, in terms of phone call monitoring, uh, my her niece coming in and caring for her when I couldn't be there, especially on the weekends. It offered me a tremendous respite from the day-to-day -day care. Um, and then we ultimately had to start paying for care and uh, identified a, a well-reviewed um, uh, uh, organization that provided nursing and, and home health aides and companions. And I spent a total of $50,000 on the care for my mother and the maintenance of her house and making sure the house was safe and things like this. So uh, I don't recommend anyone doing that. And I think on the outset, uh, one should uh, investigate uh, with an elder lawyer or something like that about ways to protect your assets, ways to protect your, uh, you know, your revenue, your, your money. Uh, because let me tell you something, I could use that 50 grand right now uh, in my life, you know, um, but it was uh, sort of par for the course. And, you know, if I had to go through it a second time, I would do things a lot differently. Um, some things differently, other things I would, would, would remain the same. But anyway, um, uh, that, that, that was my experience about lining up family, family that was down in Texas. They became part of the phone brigade, uh, the, the relatives that lived closer by, they would fill in when the aides called out, you know, because they always called out um, and uh, or they frequently called out, not always. And then so you had to have plan B ready. And a lot of times my mother's siblings filled in for that. Mm. Um, and I was real blessed to have all the love and support that we had uh, in, in, in getting us through that very difficult five years uh, of caring for my mom. Thank you. That's really helpful. Do we have any other um, tips that we might want to share with 
the participants or the, the list, future listeners. Kim, do you have any? Yeah, I'd like to speak <laughs> into this for a moment. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm really struck by all the stories again. And uh, Malia talking about the person who, you know, hugged her uh, that was a stranger and the word grace popped into my head and uh, that, well, that she was an angel, that person was an angel. But I, I found um, in caregiving that uh, random beautiful things could happen, like right about the time you're ready to go off the despondent cliff, um, <laughs> that were just beautiful, but you have to be looking for them. You have to be open to seeing them. And a friend of mine uh, paraphrases this Buddha saying that, um, you know, in life there are 10,000 sorrows and 10,000 joys. The sorrows will find you. You must look for the joys. And I think when you're in this season um, for your own sanity and maybe for just increasing your capacity to be the kind of caregiver you want, the gratitude and the joy looking that you all have talked about is priceless. Um, ironically, I was trying to think if I saw this on the Alls Author's site, but I saw something on Twitter. Um, it is, I like to say that there are only four kinds of people in the world. Those who mm -hmm. have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. That, uh, mm -hmm. Rosalind Carter said that. And to the brothers who couldn't show up or the family members that couldn't show up, um, you know, they're going to be there because we all end up there. I mean, in, in some capacity, we end up there. But I think about these big decisions, these critical decisions with families that um, that are ones that back ourselves into a corner for the rest of our lives that we don't see the magnitude of, right? So, um, and, and what motivates the no. So I wonder why they couldn't show up. Um, and I, the word fear popped into my head, right? But it doesn't change that you're abandoned uh, in the moment that you need someone most, but there's a price to pay for both sides of that. You know what I'm saying? So uh, while it looks like they got off at some, at some point, I think there's, there's a price you pay for not being there as well. So mm -hmm. I do do a lot of work with families who are trying to make difficult decisions, who are estranged in making those decisions around caregiving. And we all have a story we tell ourselves about why the other person is doing what they do. And um, there are so many stories it could be, the odds of us getting that right are slim to none. But not only that, there's always more than one story. So we can latch onto one thing that's the reason why things are sideways, but it's always more than that. Um, and at the time and place you're ready or not to have that conversation, um, it is healing to know what that story really was mm -hmm. um, and where that person stands now. Because when, when we sit in a present and say, I know what this person's going to do or say, we're in the past, right? And I sometimes say that we're robbing them of an opportunity to get it right this time. They, they may say no or not show up. I mean, I, I, I think there is a point where we all say, I don't even want to bark up that tree anymore. But, um, but we aren't the same people we were back then. And we learn. And sometimes our hardest lessons are from our biggest mistakes. Mm -hmm. So I just, uh, the part of me that's a conflict manager thinks about the people 
who aren't here to say their story and just, you know, wants to hold space for, I wonder what that was. Um, I think something that you just said really struck me, Kim, and that's that I feel I gained something that he'll never have. And that's closure. I was there when my mom passed. I was there when my dad passed. You gave me goosebumps. Like that just gave me goosebumps. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a beautiful experience. There's yeah. no other way to describe it. Yeah. And he, he'll never have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I'm grateful that you talk so much about gratitude um also because uh once my i pivoted to grab gratitude there were like these fissures that opened mm-hmm. up between my mom and i and and the woman that i had long the mother i had longed for came shining Aww. through before she passed while she still knew me like she knew i was her daughter and 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 you know that day in and day out consistently standing up for her and being with her and coming to see the joy in the moment and the compassion, meeting her there, uh, finally ushered in the mother I wanted all my life. And I got to see that before she passed. And what a gift that was. What a blessing that was. What a gift. You know, the truth is, the truth is, there is no easy way to do this. This is, this is not easy. And, uh, but there is an easier way to do this. And um, maybe the grace in it doesn't come out so much until the end, though I really believe in those moments that give us just enough to keep going. But um, figuring out the next right step, right? Like uh, he seems to, for my life, uh, get me somewhere that I didn't even imagine I could go. Uh, So I think that just figuring out the next right step, even though the whole future looks big and scary and you, you want to plan for that. I also found in my life that the only thing that happens in the future is the things I haven't planned for. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just really focusing on the next right thing to do. You will get to a destination like these folks here where you sit back and say, I did well. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. We did have a couple of questions um, <clears throat> from Herta Saunders. Um, she asks, um, what for each of you would have helped most when you were caring for a person you loved, even though they were difficult? Did you ever or often have burnout and did you get help or find ways to restore yourself? Do we have any comments on that? One or two? Great question. I think self-care is the parallel line, parallel, the parallel process while you're giving care care to someone else is figuring out how to take care of yourself too at the same time. And for me, uh, I had a prayer and meditation practice. I did deep breathing. I still took vacations. Like I just, you know, still took breaks and had respite from the act of caring and had to entrust others to care for my mother in those moments and be okay with that. Um, so self-care is a parallel process and it's a necessary process. Uh, the support groups, the, like I said, the deep breathing in the moment when you're faced with like a, her, you know, the combative nature of my, my mother, I had to like learn to breathe and learn not to retaliate and to try to come from a heart, like lead with my heart 
Um, but leading with your heart all the time can lead to burnout mm -hmm. and fatigue and, com and compassion fatigue and uh, all those things you read about. And there's, you know, plenty of resources available about how to uh, do self-care. You need only Google self-care and uh, for caregivers, and you'll get thousands of pages of uh, things that you can do um, uh, to take care of yourself in this process. It's so important. It was faith. My faith, I became very spiritual. I, I've always been, I mean, I've always had a, a Christian background, but for me, my faith was really my shining star through all of this. Um, I just, which is why I, I called my book In Search of Rainbows, because that's exact, exactly what I did every day. And my faith, it just really pulled me through when, when those dark moments arrived, when I felt hopeless, when I wanted to just dive into self-pity. And I just, I had to dig myself out literally. And there were times when it's like everybody that I wanted to talk to, they weren't, they either didn't have time to listen to me, or if they were listening to me, they weren't hearing me. And it hurt. And of course, journaling, um, like Barbara said, self-care, it, it's huge. It, it, it's a must. It's so necessary. Um, the journaling part, which later led to my book, um, really was something that saved me too. Between my faith and my journaling, it was just really part of taking care of myself. I want to add something here about the, um, if I may, about um, these these best practices for taking care of ourselves. The truth is um, also that when we're caregivers, we have moments of exhaustion, of resentment, of hurt, of anger. And sometimes we beat ourselves up about having those moments. They are normal. They are real and it's okay. So, um, and we can't, we don't talk about them because then we somehow decided that we aren't supposed to have feelings like that. It's always just supposed to be love and giving. I feel like we need to talk about the hard because it's real. And if there's not shame attached and we can talk about it, I have families sometimes the caregiver will say, this is just so hard. I want to quit. And the family's jumping down their throat because Oh, look at them feeling sorry or whatever their story is. But the truth is we feel like that sometimes and it's okay to say it. Like it's okay to feel it. It will pass and you'll be on track again. Again, back to the next right thing. So just don't beat yourself up when you're not the best version of yourself uh, because you can't be all the time, right? This is hard. It is. Thank you so much, Kim. Barbara, Kathy had a question for you. She wants to know what is the name of that camera? The camera you were talking about. Do you remember? Oh, uh, I actually don't remember. Um, but I do remember I bought it at Best Buy. Uh -huh. And they had a, a wide array of them. So uh, I'm sure on Amazon, you just Google two-way audio video and you'll get products. I should say, look on Amazon Smile because you want to make sure you're giving the support to Al's authors Exactly. As well. Yes. You can sign up to be, uh, <laughs> make us your Amazon smile charity. And we would get a portion of your purchases at no cost to you to kind of keep us going along. Yeah. Okay. So thank you everybody. Um, I really think that this went, went well and, and perhaps we'll have to do it again in the future. It sounds like such an important topic. So thank you everyone for attending this Al's authors live event.
Next year, we're going to kick off our, our live uh, programs in January with a writing workshop for caregivers from Laura Davis, who is the author of The Burning Light of Two Stars, with our partners at Kensington Senior Living. So looking forward to that. That's going to be like a three-hour uh, commitment of time because you're going to be learning about writing and and journaling and all of that and, and doing some practice work as well. And Laura is a great teacher. So I recommend that. We'll post the details for that on our website and in our social media, and we will be emailing it to our followers. So if you um, want to be among the first to know about everything All's Authors, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter if you're not already on it. You can find it at allsauthors.com. If you go on the website for a few seconds, it'll pop up. You can sign up there and then check your inbox every week for our news our latest author, the latest podcast, special events, our sales. Also be sure to visit our blog, the podcast, the bookstore, shop at allsauthors.com. And some people said they liked my sweatshirt. That's where that came from. Comes in a variety of colors and, and I love it. I wear it all the time. So you'll find a lot more resources for your dementia journey at All's Authors. And we invite you to share your own dementia story in our six word memoir project. This is telling your story using just six words. So it sounds really challenging, but once you start thinking and writing, you'll, you'll figure it out real quick. And it, it's a good way to relieve yourself of some stress or angst. And you can find the details for that on our website as well. It's, on, it's one of the blog posts. And uh, the stories that are already submitted are remarkable. So I think you'll enjoy reading through them and, and seeing what other people are, are going through and writing about. And you'll find a lot of kinship there. You can follow us too on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. We share a wealth of resources for your journey every day. And we want you to remember that you are not alone. One can sing a lonely song, but we chose to form a choir and create harmony. Thank you so much for being here. And we wish you the happiest holiday season. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for Thank attending. You. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia, an All's Authors podcast. For more details on this episode, please see the show notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe to it on whichever platform you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information on All's Authors, please visit allsauthors.com. While you're there, be sure to browse our online bookstore, where you will find hundreds of carefully vetted books on Alzheimer's and dementia. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Please email your thoughts on the podcast to allsauthors at gmail.com. We are a 501c3 charitable organization, totally reliant on donations to do what we do. If our author's stories move you, please consider contributing to our cause. Remember, you are not alone. One can sing a lonely song, but we chose to form a choir and create harmony.